forgiveness. Uh, the great preacher Spurgeon, he said that forgiveness is the sweetest word in the Christian vocabulary. Spurgeon says, could there be a sweeter word in any language than that word forgiveness when it sounds in a guilty sinner's ears? He goes on, he says, blessed, forever blessed, be the dear star of pardon that shines into the condemned cell and gives the perishing a gleam of hope amid the midnight of despair. And he pictures forgiveness as this beautiful light bringing hope into a dark dungeon, a dark cell. And it is, as we have been seeing, as we are walking through the theology of forgiveness, how sweet it is to be forgiven. And this beautiful, sweet topic of forgiveness of sins uh, is so glorious and sweet and wonderful and joyful that we, when we come to this parable, the parable in Luke chapter 15, we often stop with the father forgiving the younger son. It's as if we we don't have the the second half of the parable with the older son. And one of the reasons is because we are just so delightful with the return of the younger son and the father embracing him and kissing him and forgiving him, the joy of the feast. They kind of want to ignore the other part. But remember that the ending of a story is crucial. As some scholars would say, it's more important than the beginning of the story. And that's what we're going to be looking at today is the second part and the ending of this parable. Uh, we, <laughs> we even call this parable the parable of the prodigal son because we are so focused and, and our emphasis is placed upon the forgiving father and the younger son. Uh, brothers and sisters, we need to remember that the parable does not end there. And there is, it's necessary, there is a, a vital importance in any study of forgiveness to also understand the other side of forgiveness, and that is the, the aspect of being unforgiving and how bitter it is unforgiveness and that's what we're going to be looking at as we walk through the second or the third part of the series and the second major part of this parable and you remember the context the context is key it's vital that's why jesus is telling this parable and verses one through three of chapter 15 gives us the context and it is the tax collectors and sinners they're all drawing near to jesus to hear him and jesus has been welcoming them these repentant sinners and he's having a meal and eating with them establish, establishing fellowship with them and the pharisees and the scribes they're grumbling they're complaining they're angry with jesus so jesus tells this parable and it's fascinating that we look at luke chapter 15 and we see three parables but actually jesus says that it's only one parable it's one major parable subdivided in three sub-stories. The 
we have the found sheep and the found coin and then the found son. And these three sub-stories, they form one major parable. And this one major parable has one major theme. And I believe that the theme of this parable is the joyful collision between the forgiving heart of God with the repentant heart of the sinner. So when the sinner repents of his sins and he turns to God and he runs to God, God on the other side is running towards him. And then you have this collision. The, both parties collide with an explosion of joy. And that's what we have been seeing. So as we come to the fourth part in this outline, remember the outline Verses 11 through 16, we have the exile of the younger son, and that's death. And then moving to the second part, we saw the exodus of the younger son, and that's life. Verses 17 through 28. And then the third part we saw last Sunday was the forgiveness of the father. Verses 20b through 24. So today we come to part four, the exile and unforgiveness of the older son, and that's death. Going back to death, verses 25 through 32. And we just to, as a way of reviewing and refreshing our minds, verses 11 through 16, you see in your Bibles, verse 11 says, Jesus is telling this parable, and he says, there was a man who had two sons. And that's crucial for us to keep in mind that this parable is not about the sons, but it's about this man, the father who has two sons. And the father here is pictured as a picture of Christ Jesus. He's the one receiving, he's God incarnate, receiving the repentant sinners. And, and it's tragic, this first part, verses 11 through 16. There is a tragedy. The son, the son is hoping, he, he treats his father as if he was dead. He wants his father to be in his grave. So he asks his father for his inheritance. He says, for me, you are good as dad. Give him what belongs to me. And that that's just so dishonoring and and disrespectful and, and horrible. And what's more shocking is the father's agreement. And the father gives to him what he wants. The father hands him over to his own sinful desires. And what we see taking place is the younger son going into exile. And it's a picture of Adam. And Israel, and, and their own self-inflicted exile, away from the blessing of the Father, away from the community of God's people, and that's what, what we see. We see taking place with sin. Sin leads man into a horrific situation, and what we have now in verses eleven through sixteen is this younger man now in the graveside of his own sins. He's buried in his sins. He is not only feeding pigs, but he's so low that now he wants to eat the food that belongs to the pigs. So it's a picture of this man dead in his graveside, in his graveyard. But starting verses 17 through 20, we have the exodus of the younger son. In life, there is a resurrection hope taking place. And we see how the pathway to achieve forgiveness and reconciliation can only be achieved through repentance and confessions of sins. So, and that's what we see taking place in verse 17. But when he came to himself, he said, Oh, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, 
but I perish here with hunger. So the son starts to remember the goodness, the love, the benevolence, the generosity of the father. And as we know through all the scriptures, it's always the goodness of God that begins the process of repentance. Saving repentance always begins with God. So he's remembering, he's thinking about the goodness of his father. Then verse 18 says, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. And we see how repentance of sin always acknowledge sin against God first, and then publicly confess the sin against the human party. And that's what he's doing here. I have sinned. It's not, I'm sorry, I blew it. No, I have sinned against heaven. And that's a word referring to God who is in heaven and against you. And then in verse 20, we saw how the gospel not only gives the desire to repent, but the gospel is so powerful that brings us feet and legs and muscles that we can stand up and run, turn away from sin and run to Christ and that's what we see in verse 20 taking place. And he arose and came to his father. So that's how ends the, this first portion here, the, the exile and exodus of the younger son. And then last Lord's Day, we look at verses 20b through 24 and the forgiveness of the father. And the spotlight now moves to the from the younger son to the great hero. The spotlight now is in the great hero of this story, and that's the father. He's the main character of this drama, and we see how while that son, all filthy, ugly, stinky, while he was still far away, long way off, his father, with his eyes of mercy, his searching eyes, sees the son, and he runs, filled with compassion. You remember, there is a, a, a movement from the eyes to the stomach, to his heart, the compassion. And now the movement of his viscera and his heart leads to the movement of his feet and his legs. And now he's running. And we know how we saw how that was humiliating for an elder, an older man to run. And now he not only runs, but he also hugs and he throws his arms around the neck of his son. He embraces him. He's protecting him before anybody else comes and tries to stone that son. And not only that, but the father starts kissing him. Kissing full of compassion, full of love, full of affection. That's a beautiful picture of forgiveness of sins that God grants to his people when we repent and turn to him. Verse 21 says, And then as the father is embracing, then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And you see, we see here how forgiveness and reconciliation take place between the father and the son as the fruit of a repentant heart colliding with a forgiving heart. And you see how the repentance is real. The younger son's confession of sin is real. It's an example for all of us to follow. And then verse 22 to 23, the father, the son is asking the father to forgive him. The, fa the father yells and calls the, the, the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring in the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. 
The hug, the kisses, the robe, the ring, and the sandals are not enough. There must be a party. There must be a public celebration. There was a public sin. There was a public confession of sins. And now there is a public forgiveness of sins and the embracement. So that's where we stop last Lord's Day with the Son coming, returning home, the Father humbling himself, running to him. It's broad daylight. Everyone can see what's taking place. And there is this glorious reconciliation, this glorious, joyful collision between the forgiving heart and the repentant heart. So now we come to the last part of this parable, verses 25 through 32. And remember that in the beginning of this parable, we were told that this father had two sons. But so far, we just saw one son. Where is the second son? And that's what we're going to see now. The second son shows up. He comes to the drama. And the expectation is that certainly he will join the feast. He will rejoice with his son's arrival, his brother's arrival. So let's come to verse 25 and, and see what takes place here. So verse 25 says, Now his older son was in the field. So he was working. The spotlight moves to this older brother, the Presbyterian, the Presbyteros, the older son, the older brother. And we can picture him coming back from the field after a long, hard day of work, supervising the other servants, making sure that everything was going well in the fields. And as he's coming back, says, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. So as he's arriving home, as he's drawing near, he hears from far away the sound of instruments. The, the Greek word used here, symphonia, implies the musical instruments in the singing, harps, flutes, and people singing and dancing. And we can just picture the curiosity in the older son's mind. Wait, what's taking place here? What, what is the celebration? And maybe he even wonders if that's party, if that party's for him. Maybe finally. Finally, father recognized how much I have been working for him. So as he was coming near to the house, before he enters the house, he wants to know what's taking place. So he calls one of the servants, verse 26 says, and and he asked what those things meant. So what, what's taking place here? What is this feast? I was never informed about that. I had no idea they were having a community party today. And then in verse 27, we hear the servant explaining why the party, why the music, why the dancing. So verse 27 says, Your brother, and you can just picture the gigantic smile in that servant's face, his joy to tell the good news that the brother came back. So he says, Your brother has come. And your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. So here is the explanation why the feast, why the party. It's not, this, that, it's not that this, the younger son came home, but that the father, the father has received him back. And you see the ESV says safe and sound. The, the Greek word hugiaino. Is often used in the pastoral letters as you go to Timothy, Titus, and it's often used for uh, sound doctrine 
one one way of looking at this is the younger brother coming back now sound with a sound mind a healthy way of thinking about life another way and i believe it's more appropriate here is to see the, the greek word hugiaino as referring to the hebrew word shalom so when you get the the septuagint the greek version of the old testament frequently that same greek word is used to translate the hebrew shalom and if you remember shalom is the harmony the well-being restored into a relationship so it's the shalom between the father and the son that now infuriates the older son he can't believe that there has been shalom between the father and the son and noted the reason he says that the servant says because he, referring to the Father, he has received him back. They are celebrating because the Father has forgiven, has received him back home. Uh, Riken says, to receive in this sense is to offer reconciliation. People were celebrating the Father's unlimited welcome, not simply the Son's unexpected return. That's very important. It's because of the Father. They're celebrating the Father's forgiveness. And the expectation is, in light of the context of this parable, we, we see that when the shepherd finds the, the sheep, everybody rejoices and celebrates. When the woman finds the coin, everybody celebrates. So the expectation is certainly, now the, the son, the brother was found, Certainly, there will be an even greater celebration because he's much more worthy than a coin or sheep. So we are expecting the big smile of the older brother running to the feast and celebrating. But look at verse 28. But he was angry and refused to go in. So... Instead of being filled with joy, he's actually filled with fury, angry, indignation, or gitso, the Greek word. And we can just picture that sound of harp, the sound of the flute, the singing, the dancing. Instead of bringing joy to his heart, it's actually irritating him. The fact that the father killed the fattened calf to celebrate the reconciliation lights his heart with profound anger. He's enraged at the fact that the father could forgive the brother. The shalom, and here's what's so sad and so bitter and so ugly. The shalom between the father and the younger son brings resentment and outrage. So we can just imagine what he's thinking. How can that filthy, nasty little sinner now receive a red carpet treatment? He's furious. He's furious with the forgiveness. And there is a clear contrast between the father and the older son. When the father saw, when the father saw the younger son coming, the father was filled with what? He was filled with compassion. And now the older son, as he sees his brother, he's, he hears about the brother, he's filled with what? Fury. Anger heartbreaking look at verse 28 and he refused to go in now 
he dishonors his father in front of all the guests by refusing to be part of the celebration. The celebration. We need to understand the, the context here, the cultural context. The older son had a, a vital role to play in this feast. He was supposed to be as an extension of his father and making sure that all the guests were being well fed, they were rejoicing, they were enjoying the feast. Instead, he refused to go there. One scholar says, by refusing to take his place at the table, the elder brother was renouncing one of the responsibilities of his sonship. Joe Green writes, his refusal to enter his own home is also a refusal to share in the meal, a symbolic act of gargantuan proportions in a culture where kingship boundaries are secured through the sharing of food. Yeah, yeah, when you understand the context and how meals were so important in establishing a relationship, a covenantal relationship through a meal, and now this son is refusing to go in, it's... The dishonor is even hard for us to imagine how profound that was. And what we see here, this rebellion, this anger, this lack of honor, this disrespect towards his father, what we need to see here, that these things were in his heart. We need to remember that unexpected, unexpected circumstances, things that we are not expecting to take place, often review our hearts. This anger was nothing new. Not that the anger just showed up. The anger was always there. The truth is that there had not been a situation to review the anger. But now it's the brother's return. There was light shining in his heart and now we can see what's taking place. And, and sometimes there are people that we, we thought and some people that you know... And he thought that they were so sweet and gracious and kind. But then there is an expected situation that takes place. And suddenly they reveal bitterness and anger and unforgiving spirit. And you wonder, wow, how could that happen? And biblically speaking, is those things were in the heart. They were right there. They were never removed. What was lacking was the opportunity for the manifestation of those things. So, it's tragic, the scene before us. This man can hear the music, but in his heart there is no joy. He refuses to join the feast and join the dance of reconciliation. And as we behold this older son, older brother, it's impossible Biblically speaking, to not compare him to Jonah. Uh, this parable must be read in connection with the book of Jonah, and the book of Jonah must be read in connection with this parable, because this older brother is just like Jonah. You remember Jonah, the prophet Jonah? He celebrated the fact that God could have brought him back from death. So when brought, when God resurrected Jonah from his Death-like experience, there's celebration, he's happy. But when God resurrected other sinners, Jonah is angry. Jonah loves grace towards him, Jonah loves mercy towards him, but he hates 
mercy towards those whom he doesn't like. And the book of Jonah is interesting because the, the, the book of Jonah ends with the prophet. Remember, he's angry. He's angry with God pardoning, forgiving the Ninevites. And it ends in a very similar to this parable. The book of Jonah ends with a question. God is asking if Jonah was right to, to be angry like that. And the parable here ends not with a question, but with an open ending, as if it, it as if it's a question, asking those who are listening if they're right to be angry at Jesus for welcoming repentant sinners. So it's heartbreaking, and we see how ugly and bitter is an unforgiving heart. Verse 28, the spotlight moves once again to the main character, that's the father. And every time the spotlight is on the father, there is joy. And now you see, and his father came out and entreated him. Verse 28, his father came out and kept trying to pursue him to come to the feast. This, the same father who ran, who left everything and ran to meet the younger son, now leaves everything and comes to meet the older son. And as we think about the father, Sometimes it's hard for us to convey the shock that, that was for the father to stop everything. You can just picture the father as he stops, stop the music. Hold on, hold on with the food. Wait, wait with the food. I need to go talk to my son. And everybody's watching him, leaving the feast, leaving the party, going probably to the courtyard outside and meeting with the son. The father's coming to seek and show mercy towards the older son. And the father keeps trying to persuade the older brother to come and celebrate. He entreated him. He kept entreating him. That's what the Greek says. And we, we can just imagine the father trying to remind the older son of the blessing of being forgiven. Quoting Psalm 32, how blessed, Psalm 51, how blessed it is when someone is forgiven, when someone confesses the sins, repents and receives forgiveness. And then the spotlight moves back to the older son. Look at verse 29. Oh, and the more this older son speaks, the more he opens his mouth, the more he reveals his bitterness, his anger, his sinful heart. So verse 29 says, Behold, and notice how disrespectful it is. When he says, Look, he's implying that his father is blind. To all that he has been doing. When he says, Father, look. He's implying, old man. Look at what I have been doing for you. Let me help you. Open your eyes so you can see what I have been doing here. And then he says, look. This many years I have served you. That's the ESV. I, I think the NIV has a better translation here. The NIV has, I have, I, I, I have been slaving for you. And the verb here, dolel, from where you get dolos, is slave. And that's the picture. He had always served his father, not out of love, out of affection, but out of obligation. There was no love and care. So he's expressing, he's showing, I have, I have served you like a slave. I have slaved for you. And then he says, verse 29, and I never disobey your command. Oh, the irony 
is great. His self-righteousness is gigantic. Here's this man disobeying his father. His father is calling him to go into the party. His father is commanding him to come inside and celebrate. And he's disobeying his father. And he has the audacity to say how obedient he is. And bitterness that leads to an unforgiving heart is very ugly. And what we see here is this picture of this son who had always been with his father physically, but his heart had never been there. So his body maybe never left the home, but his heart was far, far away from home. David Garland says, one was prodigal in heart and body, the other was prodigal only in heart. So the older son might have never left the house with his body, but his heart, his mind was in exile a long, long time ago. And then look at verse 29. Verse 29, the more he speaks, the more he reveals about himself. There, there is a sense that we just want him to stop talking. He just, please stop. Just stop talking. Stop blabbing. He's just making things worse. So verse 29, he says, Yet you never gave me a young goat. He's talking about his goodness, how he has slaved and obeyed. And he says, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. And he's implying that his father is stingy towards him. Not even a young goat. A young goat was much less costly than the fattened calf. But he's trying to picture, he's trying to paint his father as a, as a stingy man. But actually, by his own words, he reveals himself to be the stingy one. You see, what feeds a greater number of people? A young goat or a fattened calf? Yes, certainly the fattened calf will feed a greater number of people. And that shows us his selfishness, how stingy his heart is. Look at he says, you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with, with whom? With my friends. <laughs> this older brother, he wants a feast, but this feast has no space for his father, his brother, other people from the community, only his friends. Riken, he writes, Notice further that even if he did get his goat, he would not share it with his father at all. He only wanted to eat with his friends. In this respect, he was no better than his younger brother. Both sons wanted their father's wealth, but not their father's fellowship. Shows the stinginess of his own heart. In verse 30, things just get worse. So he says, But when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he's so angry, this older son, he even refuses to call his brother my brother. Instead, he says, This son of yours. There is a lack of respect, a lack of honor. 
The older brother shows in his bad temper when scholar says that he has had no more real respect for his father for his father than his brother had. This whole scene is disgraceful, is as tragic as when the younger son treated his father as if he was dead. Because he's doing the same thing here. Notice how he refers to the younger brother, younger son. He says, this son of yours. This son of yours takes us to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 21. In Deuteronomy chapter 21 verses 18 through 21, we hear about uh, a man, a son, who brings dishonor to his father. And he says that the father and the mother will take hold of that disrespectful and dishonoring son. And he will bring that son to the elders of the city at the gate. And they shall say to the elders of the city, This our son or this son of ours is stubborn, rebellious. He will not obey that all the men of the city shall stone him to death with stones. So, when the older brother is using this expression from Deuteronomy 21, he's implying, he's saying that the father should have killed him instead of killing the fattened calf. Oh, father, you are wrong in killing that calf. You should have killed this man here, taking back to Deuteronomy 21. Look, he says, uh, but when the son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You know, earlier the text never said that he spent his money, that he squandered his money with prostitutes. I, I believe that certainly he was involved with these things. If you think about him moving to Gentile territory, and the probability is very high that he was living in sexual sins. But the, the, the question is, why is he bringing up this? Why, why is the older brother, the older son, bringing this up? There is no point. Unless, unless, and that's what he's trying to do, he's trying to magnify himself and humiliate his brother. He wants to magnify his righteousness, his self-righteousness, and at the same time, he wants to magnify his brother's sins to show how good he is. There was no need to make this nasty comment. But he wants to humiliate his brother. And probably this older brother has in his mind Proverbs 29 verse 3. Proverbs 29 3 says, He who loves wisdom makes his father glad. But a companion of prostitutes squanders his father, his wealth. So that he's expecting his father to rejoice with him and reject the younger son. In one sense, the older son, the older brother, he cherishes, he treasures this broken relationship between the father and the younger son because he can show himself to be better than the other one. So it's sad, it's ugly. He not only accused the father of showing favoritism, he not only accused the father of being stingy, but he also accused the father of injustice. He believes that's unrighteous what the father is doing. It's, he's saying that actually immorality in this house is better than being a moral and righteous person. That's why he's telling his father. You see, you, re, you reward immorality. And look at me. 
the one who honors you, the one who works hard, you don't honor. So he's calling his father of ungodly, unjust, a lover of perversion. And then he says, and you killed, look at verse 30, and you killed the fattened calf for him. His sin, his anger has perverted the reality. That's what happens when you're so angry and you're bitter, you cannot see the truth. The truth is that the fattened calf had been killed to celebrate the father's forgiveness. But the older son wants this to be about him, wants to be about the younger son. When in reality, the banquet is about the father. The feast is related to the father, the father's forgiveness, the father's mercy, the father's reconciliation. But sin blinds us. So, oh, brothers and sisters, you see how ugly, how ugly, heinous an unforgiving heart is. And Jesus often speaks about the terrible, the horrible consequences of those who refuse to forgive repentant sinners. Those who refuse to forgive repentant sinners are actually in exile from God's heart, from God's presence. There is a, a picture here where the older son does not resemble the father. And the true children of God are called, commanded, and by the new spiritual nature, expected to resemble the Father in having a forgiving attitude, a forgiving heart. An unforgiving, an unforgiving Christian is a contradiction. And Jesus speaks a lot about the danger, the peril, the harms of being unforgiving. Uh, in the Lord's Prayer, he talks about that. In Matthew 18, in Matthew 18, if you go to Matthew 18, as Jesus is talking about, there is a context of a brother sinning against another brother, confrontation, hopefully, repentance, forgiveness. If not, there will be uh, excommunication, church discipline. And it's in this context that Peter asks Jesus about how often or Remember how many times should I forgive my brother? And it's in this context that Jesus tells this parable. He, tells, he talks a parable about an, a king who had a massive enterprise. And so this king, and one day he calls his servants to give an account. And he finds out that he has one servant there who owes him billions of dollars uh, uh, an unpayable debt, that's what the imagery is. And he calls this servant to come and pay him. And the servant, you remember, verse 26 of Matthew 18, he falls, he falls on his knees, begging for mercy, for compassion. And then out of compassion towards the servant, the king takes on his own the debt. He forgives him. He cancels the debt. And then, huh, this forgiving servant, so joyful, so happy, his debt was canceled. And as he's leaving the king's presence, he comes across another servant who is now owing him. He's owing him something like a hundred bucks, for example, something very easily payable. 
And then what does he do? I want my money, he tells him. And the other servant imitates him. He does the same thing that he did towards the king. He falls on his knees. He begs for mercy. But instead, he does not receive mercy. And you remember, the, par the parable says, When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their masters, to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant, as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So he says, Jesus says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. But what Jesus is teaching us is that in light of God's incalculable grace to us, forgiving us, it's ridiculous as well as wicked for us to refuse to forgive others when they repent of their sins. I like what Casey says, Patrick Casey, he says, We are never instructed by God to minimize sin, but the one who rejects repentant sinners is not in line with the Father's will. And that's why we see we must be marked by a forgiving spirit. There are certainly, certainly there are occasions when we must withhold forgiveness in other situations when we call God to judge the situation. But the mark, the overall mark of our lives must be one of readiness to forgive. The toxicity and the poison of bitterness and unforgiveness cannot have place in our hearts, in our church. Amen. So, now we come once again to the Father. The spotlight moves to the Father. And we see in verse 31, the Father speaking once again in mercy, tenderness towards the rebellious Son. He says, Son, you are always with me, and all that's mine is yours. And, and here we see oh, the most glorious, the most beautiful blessing that the, younger, the, old, the older Son had was the Father's presence. More important than all the gifts, more important than the money, the property, the feast, was the presence of the Father. And He is squandering that presence. He is forsaking that presence. And we're going to go, we're going to get back to verse 32. But before we get there, it's just interesting, it's fascinating how this parable ends. You notice that there's. Nothing about the older son's final response. And as we were doing the family devotional with the kids last night, and we went through this story, and the kids asked, Okay, so did he go to the feast? Did he decide to enter the party and celebrate? And here's the beauty of the parable. You see, the, the parable is left open. So that the readers, the listeners, may reflect on the proper response. Jesus is telling this unfinished parable. And he's giving the opportunity for the Pharisees right there to write the ending of that story. Will they join the feast? Will they 
repent and join the feast or will they be like this bitter, unforgiving older son who is not in line with heaven and with the Father's will? So it's open. It's open for the Pharisees. It's open for us to write the ending of this parable. And now we see that unless the older son repents, he will not be able to join the feast and the reconciliation. The older son, like the younger son, he must repent. He is as filthy as, the, as his younger brother. And he needs to repent, to be washed and forgiven. I like what Warren Wiersbe says. He says, if we are out of fellowship with God, we cannot be in fellowship with our brothers and sisters. And conversely, if we harbor an unforgiving attitude towards others, we cannot be in communion with God. When they show true repentance, we must forgive those who sin, and we should seek to restore them in grace and humility. And here's the thing, we know, we know that some Pharisees actually repented. Some Pharisees, they joined the feast of forgiveness. One example is Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. And he repented and he joy, he enjoyed the feast. And certainly, who is the greatest Pharisee that we know in the New Testament? Yes, Saul, Paul. Paul also. A beautiful example of one who repented and joined the feast with Christ Jesus. So the parable ends and we must ask ourselves, will I repent and join the feast of forgiveness? Will I leave behind the bitterness and align myself with the heart of God in heaven? So Jesus leaves open. Oh, and then look at verse 32. Verse 32, and we finish here. The Father says, It was fitting, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. The ESV has, it was fitting. I don't think that's the best translation. The Greek word here, day or a day, means to be under necessity of happening. It's necessary. One must. So a better translation is, we must celebrate. There must be celebration and gladness. And that's what the Lord is saying. The celebration and honor and joy are demanded. It's a must. Because it's all about the Father's doing. It's all about the Father's forgiveness. It's all about the Lord's forgiveness. There is joy in heaven when a sinner repents. Why? Because that sinner is making God great and big once again. He's turning to God. He's treasuring God. Reichen says, this feast, this simply had to be done. This simply had to be done. Not because the prodigal son deserved it, but because the father's love demanded. <laughs> Amen. Who brought the son back to life? Who brought the younger and the older, or the older, who brought the younger son to life? Yes, the Lord, the Father. 
who found the younger son the father it's all the lord's doing it's all the lord's doing it's marvelous in our eyes and we must celebrate we must rejoice because the lord has done it and that takes us as we are preparing ourselves to partake of the lord's supper think about the lord's supper the lord's supper is an ordinance it's a command it's an order from jesus and it's order it's an ordinance commanding us to celebrate because just like with this parable we must celebrate the work of god the lord's table is the the table of forgiveness where we sit and feast in the forgiveness of sins and we must celebrate because it's the lord's doing and it's at the lord's table as we come to this table alive we come to him alive resurrected we come robed with a new robe the robe of christ's righteousness and we feast on we we feast with we feast in christ jesus and we sit there and he embraces us he kisses us there's joy there's joy and the beautiful thing is the paradox is that the young bull the young calf the fattened calf that was sacrificed is not an animal but it's the lord himself the day of atonement was achieved through the blood of christ bringing forgiveness of sins and so we get together at the lord's table and we remember together here's the beautiful thing remember the promise the new covenant promise the lord says i will be their god they will be my people he goes on to say i will remember their sins no more so as we sit at this table with the arms of christ around our necks receiving his love being fed by him we remember together that he remembers our sins no more it's a feast that we must celebrate it's a feast of remembrance where we remember that he remembers our sins no more and we partake of the cup not a cup of poison not a cup of bitterness but a cup of forgiveness a cup of life all glory be to christ amen oh lord we come before you and we thank you we thank you for your word. I pray that you pierce this word into our hearts. Change us. Help us, Holy Spirit, to be more and more like Christ. Deliver us, I pray. I pray that you deliver us as a church, as individuals, from a bitter, unforgiving, angry heart, Lord. Make us, make us a church that loves, loves to forgive repentant sinners to embrace one another and when there is sin that would follow the biblical procedure and when there is repentance that would gladly and joyfully forgive and embrace so please help us lord deliver us deliver us from becoming like the older son and there is a little bit of both sons in us because of sin deliver us thank you for being the great hero of this drama Thank you for being the great hero of the drama of forgiveness, Lord. In Jesus' name.